All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship by studying God's Word. So I hope you've got a Bible with you. Open it up to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 1. As we continue our Advent series that Chris Kinsley began us in last week, Redeeming Christmas, Longing of Redemption was last week, and we get to History of Redemption here this morning as we pour through the names, the genealogies, the origin story of Jesus the Christ. So think about it. Sometimes a list of names um, can bring with it memories. It can bring with it a sense of memories and, and even feelings. So for example, if you grew up like I did, a child of the 80s, then this list of names might mean something to you. Mary Lou Retton, the ones who laughed are of mature age. <laughs> Mary Lou Retton, Greg Luganus, Carl Lewis, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, and others. Well, what do they have in common? U.S. Olympians from the 80s and early 90s, right? And th those were U.S. Olympic athletes that I watched when I was a kid gathered around a TV set that was about 900 pounds in our living room. It was this big cabinet, right? The big wooden cabinet. And I just remember watching them and cheering them on. And so just, bring, just saying the name, Mary Lou Retton, saying the name Carrie Strug, I'm there. Right? It bring, it's not just a list of names. It brings with it a sense of story and scenes and it, videos running through your mind. Or if we fast forward and I said, Rachel, Monica, Joey, Ross, Phoebe, and Chandler. Maybe others are now in on the fun. And, and, and even when I say those names, maybe scenes come to mind. Not just lists of names, but scenes come to mind. Maybe even this, a sense of the gravity because because the, it's not just a show, but the show comes into reality with, with the death of Matthew Perry, who played Chandler. And so saying Chandler's name connects you to some other things that are happening out here in the real world. That's what Matthew's doing when he introduces Jesus Christ. These names aren't just a list of names. They're hyperlinks to the archives of the story of God's people. They're linking you up to history. They're playing videos. As you're reading these names, if you were steeped in Old Testament history, these names come with videos and scenes. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go. Time to earn my Christmas bonus. Abraham <laughs> fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron followed Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Yeah, thank you. Come on. <laughs> Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David unto the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the story of Advent, tucked inside names. It's got running videos attached to all these hyperlinked Names, But you think about the significance of Advent. Advent, I love, Chris was talking about this last week in some ways, that Advent is, um, is for tired people. Advent is for people who are waiting and, and it feels like they've been waiting, frankly, too long. The blank page between your Old Testament and your New Testament represents 400 years of silence, 400 years of Israel having no prophet, 400 years of Israel having no signs, no miracles. That, what's that mean? It means for 400 years, Israel's faithful remnant has been singing, come thou long expected Jesus, generation after generation, dying singing that song, right? Their faith is hanging by a thread, and by now their voices are paper thin as they continue to try to sing, Come thou long expected Jesus. The, the longer I pastor, the more I discover that a lot of the most earnest Christians who gather on Sunday morning are really, really tired. They're tired of the struggle with sin. They're tired of battling the flesh. They're tired of constant spiritual warfare. John Bunyan said the Christian always walks with the wind in his face. They're, they're tired of the struggle. Their spirituality can feel like the plate spinner guy at the halftime show of the NBA game, right? That, that's what it feels like. They're running back and forth trying to keep the plates from falling and shattering on the ground, right? Christian growth occurs under three conditions. The gospel plus safety plus time. It is slow growth. The Holy Spirit is patiently growing and sanctifying believers. So what's that mean? It means in an atmosphere of the gospel, we can relax, we can own up, we can be honest, we can come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and receive from him everything that we need today, and then tomorrow we wake up and we do it all over again. That's the beauty of the Christian life, right? So those kinds of words might not seem to connect to this long-running list of names that are hard to pronounce, right? But the names we read here, don't miss it, the names we've read here are a picture of the world Jesus came to save. So this text answers three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean? First, who is Jesus? And the first answer that becomes obvious is he's the promised one. He's the promised one. Verse one, you see there, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So this word Christ, that, that's not 
that's not Jesus' last name. It's not, his name isn't Jesus' you know, middle name, Christ. No, Christ indicated promises from the Old Testament about someone who's coming. There are road signs all throughout the Old Testament that says someone's coming, someone's coming, and that someone is indicated to be the anointed one. He's, in other words, the promises in the Old Testament said God is going to send a unique king. Look for him. And when that king gets here, he's going to rule and he will bring God's blessing to the nations of the world. That's what the term Christ means. The term Messiah means it's used to refer to that promised king. When he gets here, we want you to know about what he's going to look like or what he's going to be characterized by. And so the Old Testament has all these hints that it's dropping, these breadcrumb trails so that we would be able to find our way to the Messiah when he gets here. Hints of promise. So we saw these first two last week, if you're taking notes, the serpent's head crushed, which indicated the defeat of evil. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and and God said to the serpent, your head is going to be crushed by the offspring of the woman, but you will bruise his heel. So you see the next point, his heel is bruised. That is to say that when this offspring comes, the offspring of the woman, whenever he does come down the road, he is going to crush and defeat evil by means of his own suffering. So there's a clue. It's not surprising then that when you get over into Isaiah 53 and it says, he will be bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It's referencing back to that original word. In defeating death, he himself will be bruised. So that original promise of Genesis 3.15 was the earliest gospel promise that a son is coming who will triumph over evil through his own agony. In the language of the New Testament, here, verse 1, the word translated account in your English translation is the Greek word biblos. It just literally means book. So the first word of Matthew's gospel in the original language is biblos, book. The second word of Matthew's gospel in the original language, which is translated here, genealogy, is actually the Greek word geneseos, and it literally means Genesis. Which means that Matthew has the audacity to open the first page of the New Testament and say, book of Genesis. (laughs) You'd have to be pretty bold to start your account of the life of Jesus with the words, the book of Genesis. There's already copyright for that, right? You're going to end up in court over this, right? There, we already got a book of Genesis. It's already there, right? Well, Matthew says, well, we got a new one. We have a new Genesis, we have a new book of Genesis, and it's all tied to Jesus, right? The only way that you could justify using language that bold, if you're Matthew, is if the arrival of Jesus signifies nothing short of a new start for the cosmos. There is a reset button on the world, and it's located in the oddest of places in a little hamlet of a town called Bethlehem. Hits the restart button on the cosmos, on the entire world. In other words, to to Matthew's mind, the deepest beginning in history was not the birth of the world, but the birth of the world's savior. He is the promised one. Next, he's from the right line. So, Going into the Old Testament, all of Israel's hopes were hitched up to two massive promises that were made to two guys who lived about a thousand years apart from one another in the Old Testament. So if 
I'll name them in just a second. But if guy number one's lineage didn't run that thousand years all, all the way to guy number two, God's promises would be unfulfilled. We need both of those guys in action. If guy number two shows up on the scene and his lineage is somehow terminated, God's promises would go unfulfilled. So the two biggest promises from God were about a son born in the lineage of those two guys. Who were the two guys? Look at verse one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, this is Matthew's genius Old Testament st storytelling way of saying it couldn't be more intriguing to locate where this one comes from. He hails from Abraham, and he hails from Abraham by means of David. This bristles with excitement, right? Verse 2 through 6, you see the first section of the genealogy. It moves from Abraham to David. There's that thousand-year run. And all the names that come, 14 names that come in that thousand year run. You think about it in, in your own life, and this might be very real for you. Uh, it might be triggering, but here at Christmas time, right, we're all ordering gifts. Some of us are ordering the gifts, and it's kind of late. We're down to the wire, and you're not sure, is the package going to come here in time? Did I order this in time? Is it going to be able to get here before Christmas Day? Well, the beauty is, right, today, these days, we have the ability to, to do what? To, to track the package. You could see when the package leaves Portland and now it's in Wichita and now it's in Charlotte for whatever reason. And then, and then you can find out, oh, it's en route. It's headed to my house right now. And then sometimes the, the person who delivers it actually has to take a picture of it next to your door so you can see, oh, it's, it's literally outside right now. You see your dead plant out in the front next to the package, right? <laughs> and it's like the Old Testament writers, go with me for a minute, it's like the Old Testament writers put a tracking device on the package, you might call it the Messiah package, and it's got this beep, beep, and all throughout the Old Testament, if you put your ear to the page, you can hear beep, beep, each page, the Messiah package is moving different places, and you need to know where to look to, to know where the package is, so tracking the, the promise, Abraham, starts here. God makes a promise, it's Genesis chapter 12. And that's where the, the, the initial tracker is placed on the package, right? At first they know that Messiah will be the offspring of Abraham. So, so what's that mean? All eyes on Abraham, right? Every day that Abraham walks, we're following him because inside him, he's the carrier. He is carrying the package, right? And then God says in Genesis 21, to Abraham, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. So now all eyes are on Isaac. Isaac's got the package. Beep, beep. Everywhere that Isaac goes, the package is beeping. And then it moves from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob is, uh, shall we say, a complicated character in Old Testament history, right? He is at the same time a, a patriarch, a, a man of faith, and yet he is one of the Old Testament's most talented liars, Almost every time the man opens his mouth, he's lying. He cheated his brother out of his inheritance. His mom helped with that. That's, that's kind of one of Jacob's stories, right? Jacob, Jacob's that guy who nobody can trust. He wins every card game he's ever played. They never let him into the casinos, right? He, that's Jacob. 
You can't trust him as far as you can throw him. But he, there he is. He's the patriarch, and the package is on him. It's beeping everywhere. He got, all eyes are on Jacob because that's where the Messiah package is. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And Israel has how many sons? Twelve sons. And the twelve sons are then called the tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Israel. And when Jacob is about to die, right, so the package is beeping on Jacob and Jacob's about to die at the end of Genesis, and what's everybody wanting to know? Where is the package going to go? The package has to be carried by someone. Jacob's about to go here, right? Who gets it next? And Jacob calls his sons over in Genesis 49, and we eavesdrop on this moment where he prophesies over each name of each one of his sons, and then he addresses a son named Judah, and he says this, Judah... Your sons shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's an intriguing set of words. Something is on the neck pushing down the enemy. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that is the scepter of kingly rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is an intriguing promise made through Jacob to his son Judah. Don't miss what's contained there. The package is being transferred. It is being transferred, as it were, from Wichita to Charlotte. It is moving from one guy to the next. He's going to carry it from here, right? A ruler's coming. He's going to be like, he's going to be lion-like. His dominion will never end. When it's all said and done, he's going to receive tribute from all the peoples of the world. And another way that you could say it in the New Testament might be every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That word in Genesis 49 is spoken 900 years before there's a single king on a throne in Israel. It's stunning. In other words, Jacob, right before he dies with the package beeping on him, he whispers, kings are coming, and then he hands the package to Judah. Now what? All eyes on Judah. Let's follow Judah because that's where the package is. The king's going to rule forever through this guy. He's going to put his foot on the neck, this guy. What's the relevance of that for God's Old Testament people? It means, it means this. If you listen to the words that were spoken to Judah in Genesis chapter 49, and if your tracking technology is up to date, then you know when you start hearing rumors 900 years later that there's a guy who's going to sit on the throne and his name is Saul, and he's from what tribe? Benjamin, that's the wrong package. He's not the carrier. He can't be, the king, that's what we call a non-starter. He is from the wrong tribe, right? The kings are gonna come, Genesis 49, from Judah. Benjamites are wonderful. I'm sure they have other talents, right? That's the idea here. But they aren't the kings, as Saul would ably demonstrate. Kings come from Judah, so all eyes are on Judah. Judah has the package. And so you're reading through the Old Testament while tracking the promise to Abraham, and it gives deeper significance to the individual stories. So think about it. For example, think about it with me. That's why Joseph, 
Joseph can't die in a hole in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph can't die in prison in Genesis chapter 39. Why? Because there's a famine brewing where all the other sons are. There's a famine brewing in that part of the world and Joseph has been ordained by God to go through a terrible experience and then rise to power in Egypt to save many lives and that's why he's thrown into the hole. He's sold into slavery. He ends up in prison. He interprets a dream. He's exalted to the right hand of power in Egypt. He forgives the worst brothers on earth. He invites them to live under his provision and protection there in Egypt. It's got to go that way, right? Because if Joseph doesn't rise to power and he dies in the hole, then Jacob and, Jacob and the 11 of his 12 sons die of starvation outside of Egypt. And Judah is the package carrier. And if Judah dies, it's game over. So that moves us from Judah to David. And if it's game over, David never arrives. Guy number two in Matthew's genealogy never arrives. Matthew's genealogy implodes, and David is central in this account. And really, David is central in the rest of Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses the word king more than any other New Testament book. And if you notice, you read through the book of Matthew, afflicted people throughout the gospel of Matthew run to Jesus crying what? Son of David, have mercy. You have the package, right? Remember when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? No, some say this, some say that. Some say you got the package. Some say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We see Matthew beginning to answer the question, who is Jesus? And next, why did he come? So this genealogy is not exhaustive. It doesn't cover every name. So the ones here are here on purpose. So what's going on? The story of God's mercy is tucked inside the names. The story of God's mercy is tucked inside the names. So just reading through this list of names, if you are familiar with the Old Testament stories and these names, at least some of them, are hyperlinks for you and pull scenes into your mind, uh, Jesus' family's messed up. Isn't that weirdly encouraging? <laughs> Jesus' family is messed up. I, I love this quote from Tim Keller. This is super helpful. In ancient and less individualistic times, one's genealogy was like one's resume. Like today's resumes, many things were usually expunged to make it look better to the reader. Women were seldom put in ancient genealogies at all, let alone women who reminded readers of the sordid sins and corruption of ancestors such as Judah and David. All of these figures would have been disowned or expunged from a normal genealogy, but here they are not. They are all, male and female, king and prostitute, Jew and Gentile, equally part of Jesus' family. So even the begats of the Bible drip with God's mercy. So what do we see? How do we see mercy? Two things. We see gospel breath and gospel depth, gospel breath. Jesus came to bring Jews and Gentiles into God's family. The inclusion of these four women often draws the attention of commentators, New Testament scholars, again, because that is so unusual. And so when your eye is drawn to the existence of women included in the genealogy, you wanna look closer and say, who were those women? Why are they included? What's the story that's tucked into these particular women? Why include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. In a word, they're outsiders. They're, they're non-Jews. They were outside the covenants of promise, right? 
you'd include these four women's names, if you included any, you would include these four women's names if you wanted your readers to understand that the mercy of God that's coming in Christ is universally available. It's no longer just for those who are linked up by bloodline to Abraham. It's for Rahab from Jericho. It's for Ruth the Moabitess. Then gospel depth. It's a story of gospel depth. Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. There's sinners all over this list, right? Abraham. I mean, just start there. Abraham hailed from a family of, of pagan worshipers of other gods. Abraham, is he a man of faith? Yes, but it's complicated. <laughs> he is a man of faith, but he's super complicated, and he's not to be imitated at every turn. There are times where you read a story of Abraham and you're like, hey, you know, you tell your children, don't try this at home. This is not what you're supposed to do. What happens? In other words, you go through these stories and you see moments like where, where to save his own neck, he tells somebody that his wife Sarah is actually his sister. Nearly gets her committed to the harem of a pagan king. Uh, this, this, is, this is not in any marriage book you want to buy. right? If Abraham wrote a marriage book, don't buy it. And he does this not once, but twice. It's like his go-to move, right? It's like if you, if you play a first-player video game, you've got a few different buttons. You've got like a, a run button and a shoot button and a duck button and a jump button. And, uh, and Abraham just keeps mashing that duck button, right? He's got that duck and run button, and he uses it over and over, ducking and running, ducking and running. She's my sister, right? Did I tell you that? Did I say that to another king or did I say it to you? Right, bottom line, Abraham is... Complicated. About half these kings that are listed here, Davidic kings, they are not complicated. They were wicked, bone deep evil. Ahaz worshiped pagan gods. Ahaz practiced human sacrifices, including his own sons. Ahab, Ahaz took the gold and silver from the holy temple of God and gave it to his political friends for brownie points. These are wicked. Rehoboam and Manasseh, they are the stuff of legend. They are, there are stories pulled into people's minds that are not good. National embarrassment level stuff is attached to some of these names. And again, let's go back to the four women. If you're an Israelite and if Matthew's going to include four women in the genealogy, let's put our best foot forward, right? Let's include Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Of all, if you're going to include any four women, let's not include the ones that are included here. Four Gentiles, and not just any Gentile. So let's just go through the list. Tamar is there in verse 3. Tamar was a Canaanite. After her husband died, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so that her father-in-law Judah would, without knowing it, impregnate her. And she had twins from her own dad, twins named Perez and Zerah. Perez is Jesus' great, great, great granddad. Rahab, verse 5, doesn't pretend to be a prostitute. Her name in the Bible is Rahab the prostitute. Ruth, a Moabitess who married into a disobedient Jewish family. Bathsheba, Bathsheba is, her story is hard, hard to tell what role she played in the affair that took place with David. What's clear is this was a moment of national embarrassment. It was Deeply embarrassed. That scene comes into the mind of people, the people of Israel. They know the story and they picture immediately when you say the wife of Uriah the Hittite, immediately they picture Nathan having to rebuke the guy who wrote the Psalms because he's living and it's an offense against God. He's killed his own servant and loyal commander, the husband of Bathsheba. 
Matthew makes it clear that Jesus did not come to praise his kinsmen, but to save them. And Gentiles also. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean? What does it mean? It means this. In Christ, there is always hope. There is always hope. Hope is our fastball in Christianity. My, I have a friend named Joel Kurz, who's a pastor of a church in the inner city of Baltimore. And he planted a church in 2009, and uh, this might sound odd, but he just baptized his wife a couple of years ago. And she thought that she was a Christian as a teenager growing up. She went into the waters of baptism at the age of 14, but it wasn't real. It wasn't a heart relationship that she had with God, and, and it started to show in their marriage. And here's what she wrote as part of her testimony from the waters of baptism when she was baptized. I started getting drunk to numb the pain. I would drink so much and stay out so late, I don't know how I made it home in one piece. I finally came up with a plan to do whatever I could to make Joel as miserable as possible. Then he would finally tell me to leave. I followed through with my plan, but I couldn't get him to tell me to leave. I gave myself over to severe sins and didn't admit everything to him right away, but I told him that I wanted out. I honestly hated my husband. I hated this church. She's looking at that church from the waters. It was July of 2010 when I told him I wanted to leave. I knew I wasn't a Christian. I remember asking Joel one day if he would be okay if I wasn't a Christian. He told me he would still love me, but that he wouldn't be okay with it. He said, if that's the case, I would preach the gospel to you every day if I have to, and he did. For a solid six months, he patiently preached the gospel to me while trying to work himself out of a job. For six months, I refused to believe and refused to find any hope or faith in our marriage, in faith or our marriage. In January of 2011, something changed. I now believe that what changed is this. I was converted. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sins, assured me that Christ took the penalty for my sin on the cross and rose again from the dead. I repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. It happened in a moment, but I can't tell you exactly when that moment was. All I know is that Joel took me out to a restaurant and I confessed my sins to him. As I confessed sin to him, I confessed those sins to God and was assured of his forgiveness. I not only felt grace and love from Joel, I felt grace and love from God. I felt a weight lifted off me. I felt as if I had literally hit rock bottom and God broke through my wicked and dark heart and saved me. I was saved under the faithful preaching of my husband. The hopelessness that I had always felt was gone. Because of Christ, here's the next implication of this story. You can always turn a page and begin again. You can always turn a page and begin again. The gospel is only for sinners. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, as if there were any. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The gospel is only for sinners. It's tailor-made for people who have blown it and who own that fact. These names tell a story, to borrow from Romans 5, verse 20, these names tell this story where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
the only thing in this world that has a longer reach than your sin is God's mercy. Don't go through this Christmas. Let me urge you, do not, whoever you are, go through this Christmas without letting mercy reach you without this story leaping off the page and pulling you in to the grace of God. Give up the lies you've been clinging to. When you tell yourself that sin is enjoyable and fulfilling, it's not. Give up your pretended saviors. Give up your self-salvation project through righteousness or religion or self-help. Give it up. Give it over to Jesus. By the time that he writes this gospel, Matthew himself is an old man. Forty years ago, he was Matthew the tax collector. He was the moral armpit of society, a hated man with no conscience who turned on his own people. And Jesus looked at that man, Matthew, 40 years ago, and he said, you, come with me, follow me. And Matthew watched this Jesus of Nazareth work miracles and he listened to him teach and he was there when Peter had his aha moment and said to Jesus, you're the one with the package. You're the Messiah. And he heard it beeping and, God, and, and Jesus said, the Father's revealed this to you. And then Jesus, Matthew saw this one, he believed to be God in the flesh. God the Son was brutally killed on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem and then three days later, Matthew, the tax collector, saw Jesus alive again with a physical body and everything changed and he opens his book and says, book of Genesis. We get a new start, friends. That's what Matthew's saying. Everybody gets a new start because this one is here. Maybe you're tired here this morning. Maybe Advent has you weary. Maybe Advent hits different this year than it hit last year because you've been singing in your voices paper thin. Advent, good news, is for the tired. It's for the weary. What did Jesus say? All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. I want to read this to you. This is the introduction that welcomes God's people to worship. It happened at 10th Presbyterian Church under the leader, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce. Ray Ortland adapted it and uses it in manual. A number of churches use something like this. But here's what's announced at the very first words you hear when you gather together. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. What grace we have now that Jesus has come. 